Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Our opening music today is Forever Myanmar. Myanmar, country of thousands of smiles, a song by Nini Kinsawa. This program was researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida, USA. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 625 of WaveScan for release on Sunday, February 14th, 2021. On the program today, Myanmar Radio in Burma celebrates 75 years. We'll continue hearing from Adrian Sainsbury of Radio New Zealand International and our Philippine DX report from Henry Umarai. Radio Myanmar in Burma, or Myanmar as the country is known these days, celebrates its 75th anniversary tomorrow, Monday, February 15, 2021. It was back on February 15, 1946, that the radio broadcasting service in Rangoon, Burma, was restarted following the ravages of the Asian Pacific War in the middle of last century. We're grateful to Jost Jacob, VU2OS in Hyderabad, India, in alerting us to this important radio anniversary in Burma. Here's Ray Robinson now with our report. Thanks, Jeff. Here in our program WaveScan today, we honor Radio Myanmar on the occasion of their historic 75th radio anniversary. So let's go back to the very beginning as we trace the progressive developments in the wireless and radio scene in what was Burma, now Myanmar. In fact, the very first wireless communication stations in Burma were installed under the British administration in India well over 100 years ago. Burma, or Myanmar, with its 55 million people, is the largest of the six mainland countries of Southeast Asia, and it stretches for 1,300 miles from north to south. The northern section is approximately diamond-shaped, 500 miles across, and the southern section is just long and narrow, maybe 30 miles wide. The erstwhile capital city, Rangoon, or Yangon as it is known today, lies at the mouth of the Irrawaddy River, near the junction area of the larger and smaller geographic sections of Burma. A new capital city, planned and constructed, is located almost in the centre of the northern geographic section of Myanmar, and it's known as Naypyidaw, and it was established in 2006. This new capital city is some 300 miles due north of the original capital city, Rangoon, or Yangon. Asian peoples migrated into Burma from the north around three to 4,000 years ago, and these days there are more than 100 tribal language groups throughout the country. The women in the sub-tribe of the Kayan people are noted for wearing a multitude of brass rings around the neck and the men who catch fish on Lake Inlay are noted for their leg-rowing technique while standing upright on their small boats. British colonial influence from India began in Burma in 1824, and the territory was annexed by Great Britain more than half a century later. The British administration of Burma was separated from India in 1937, and five years later, in August 1942, Japanese forces invaded and established a military administration. Three years later again, in July 1945, 
British forces, together with American and Australian participation, again took over the Burma territory. And then on January the 4th, 1948, Burma gained independence. The name changes from Burma to Myanmar and from Rangoon to Yangon took place 41 years later on June the 18th, 1989. One of the major tourist attractions in Myanmar is the thousand-year-old royal city of Pagan, with its extensive ruins spread over 26 square miles, together with 13,000 large and small temples. Pagan is located 300 miles north of Rangoon, close to Mandalay. Another major tourist attraction in Old Burma is the double row of stone panels that are housed in an ornate double colonnade, also near Mandalay. Each stone panel stands about five feet tall, and each is about five inches thick. Row upon row of inscriptions in the Burmese circular script were incised into each side of each panel, and the full set of 729 stone panels contains the entire official text of the Buddhist religion. For those who enjoy ecotourism, a visit to several of the 800 islands that stretch from the Myanmar mainland out into the Andaman Sea is indeed a visit to Asia's last untouched and pristine wonderland. Or at least that's what the tourist brochures say. <laughs> Modern accommodations and amenities are sparse, but the natural beauty is idyllic. Communication wireless came to Burma very early. In fact, back at that time, experimental Marconi wireless in Europe was less than 10 years old. During the year 1904, a whole network of primitive Morse code wireless stations was installed throughout India, including Burma, which was administered during that era by the British Raj in India. It's known that five wireless stations were installed in various areas of Burma in that pre-World War I era. Those stations in Burma communicated with each other and with similar stations in Calcutta, India and with Port Blair in the Andaman Islands, sometimes direct and sometimes in a cascade relay when propagation conditions were bad. Three letter call signs for these stations began with the two letters RO and we take a brief look at each of the five original stations in alphabetical order beginning in 1904. Morse code wireless station ROB was installed at Bassein, a regional city of a quarter million people located 120 miles west of Rangoon. Bassein is famous for the manufacture of colourful parasol sunshades that are sold throughout Burma. Wireless station ROB communicated with Diamond Island ROD and Port Blair ROP in the Andaman Islands. In the Burmese language, the name for Diamond Island means Beautiful Daughter Island. In 1801, the British merchant ship Mermaid was wrecked on a nearby rock, and during the Asia-Pacific War in January 1942, the river steamer Yengyuar rescued the British radio operators who were serving at the wireless station. The original call sign for this wireless station was ROD. The Mergui archipelago in the Andaman Sea off the southern coast of Burma is made up of more than 800 islands, most of which have never been thoroughly explored nor charted. Most of the local people are known as Mokan, sea gypsies, who live off the sea and move among the islands. On one of the Mergui islands, wireless station ROG was installed. The wireless station listed at Table Island operated under the callsign ROI. 
However, that station was actually located on Slipper Island, which is a small islet attached to the northwestern point of Table Island. There was an old iron lighthouse on Table Island. Victoria Point is a town that lies at the very southern tip of mainland Burma. Back then, the wireless station at Victoria Point operated under the call sign ROV, though one listing for this station gave the call sign as ROT, which seems to be a mistake. So, in our programme today, we honour the 75th anniversary of Radio Myanmar in Burma, Myanmar, and we've investigated the early wireless scene beginning in the year 1904 and ending with World War One. We'll have more about the wireless and radio scene in Burma in a future edition. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you very much, Ray. Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. The Association for International Broadcasting reports that in the wake of the recent coup in Myanmar, Internet service is very spotty, but shortwave broadcasts to the country in the Burmese language continue from the BBC, Radio Free Asia, NHK World Radio Japan, and The Voice of America, alongside religious broadcasters, Adventist World Radio, and Transworld Radio. And good news, uh, this is also from Joe Jacob in India. The All India Radio external services in the following languages are now back on the air on shortwave as of this week. Arabic, Baluchi, Burmese, Chinese, French, Swahili, and Tibetan. But, unfortunately, English is permanently off the air. Last week, we played part of the opening plenary session of the High Frequency Coordination Conference, or HFCC, for the A21 period, which begins on March 28th. We'll have a lot more about this shortwave frequency planning conference on coming editions of WaveScan. But this week, we go back to New Zealand. Two weeks ago, we had the first part of an interview with Adrian Sainsbury, Frequency Manager of Radio New Zealand Pacific. Aaron Castillo of kpcradio.com in Los Angeles spoke with Adrian. Here's part two of that interview. We also broadcast uh, for the last 10 years in what was a very new technology only 10 years ago, and that was broadcasting in digital on shortwave. Wow! And it's called DRM, Digital Radio Mondial. And so what was amazing about this new technology was that we we sent out the, the coded signal, it's decoded by your receiver at the other end, just an HF receiver, but specially designed to, to decode the incoming digital signal, and you end up with uh, FM quality. No signal fading, no noise. It's like you know, were next door. And so we then provided quite a few of the little radio stations on the islands around the Pacific with one of these digital DRM receivers, and so they could then get studio quality from us, but coming through short wave. And for us at that time, it was a very big financial saving because satellite distribution isn't cheap. Sending mm. your or transmitting via satellite around the world is quite an expensive exercise. The satellite operators don't do it for nothing. Yeah. So um, for us, here we could we could have one transmitter in New Zealand firing out a signal covering the South Pacific. And those people equipped with a digital receiver could get studio quality reception from us. That's amazing. Yes. So how difficult is it 
to report the news in the very multitude of languages that is held around in the Pacific. Okay, first of all, many all, all the countries, English is the first language. Although they all have their own languages, obviously, they've been under New Zealand or Australian control, certainly in the early days, they were all um, colonies. So English was, they all had to learn English to progress. But we still broadcast to the islands at dedicated times in different languages. So we might do a 10 minute bulletin in the morning going to Samoa, to the Cook Islands, to Tonga. Um, in the evening we broadcast in Pigeon, to the Papua New Guinea and that area. And we do, they're not, it's not continuous, they're maybe 10 or 20 minute programs, but they go out at set times every day. But English, as I say, is the common tongue. Yeah, that's, most of our bulletins are in English. Yes. And could you walk us through a day in the life of a frequency manager? <laughs> what do you do? Well, number one, because the shortwave bands are international, you tend to get a bit of, if it wasn't organized in some fashion, people would be interfering with each other all the time. And that wouldn't work at all because you wouldn't get a clear, clear reception. And so, the International Telecommunications Union, which is based in Geneva, it's a part of the UN, they run a manage, an international management system. And so twice a year, most broadcasters, not all, but most broadcasters in the world, submit the frequencies that they think they can use for the next six months. That's how it's, how it's run. And they put all the information into a computer, and the computer says, oh no, and comes up with a whole list of collisions where they think a station, say, in Australia, will interfere with somebody in, I don't know, somewhere else in the Pacific, in Hawaii, or somewhere like that. And they say, hey, that won't work because you, you, you're going to have a collision. And so that by that, we all cooperate and spread ourselves out of it. That, so as a frequency manager, that's one job. First of all, finding a clear channel, making sure it's not going to interfere with anybody else, and... Because shortwave is dependent on the time of day, you have to use different frequencies mm. for nighttime and for daytime. The sun affects all these things. And yeah. so you have to use lower frequencies at night and higher frequencies during the day to bounce your signal off the ionosphere between the point where the transmitter is and where the person is that's receiving it. And again, computers are very clever these days. They can do a lot of these calculations in a split second, whereas years and years and years ago, it was really a very complicated mathematics exercise to work out what frequency would oh, work man. best, best over a certain, over a given distance. So it must, and shortwave is also measured in hops. And by a yes. hop, the signal bounces up off the ionosphere and down again. Now, one hop's usually about two to three thousand kilometers. Two hops, then the signal goes up again, it bounces down again. And so it goes on around the globe. So if you're listening to me in the States, as you do, um, it's probably done three or four hops. Well, it comes in real strong on those three and four hops. <laughs> and it may, yeah, I'd have to look at the computer to see exactly how, but it's certainly, I'd say it's a good three or four hops, probably, yeah, before, probably. Um, and every time it bounces up again, it's lost a little bit of its original signal. So hop one is where you deliver most of your power. 
And after that, it gradually gets weaker and weaker as it goes around the globe until it disappears. So that, that's m my job is basically keeping finding clear channels and programming the right frequency for the right time of day to the target we're broadcasting to. Yes, and right now actually is a very important time in your job because right around the corner, I believe it's this weekend, I'm not exactly sure, is the B20 schedule change. That's right. Which, for people who do not know, uh, Shortwave has two different schedules per year, the A season and the B season, and right about now is going to start B20. So how is this going to affect your station and... That, does that mean you have a lot of work going on right now trying to coordinate everyone together for this year's B20? Well, that, those, um, we've had already had meetings um, on the internet ooh, about two months ago where everybody... Oh, wow. Yeah. So all the planning is done quite a long way ahead. And you're quite right, it all takes effect this Sunday. And... I've got a new schedule that will go up. I published it already on our internet uh, webpage for, pe for people. Because it always confuses people a little bit. There's something switched on and you're not where you usually are <laughs> on the time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so um, that's that's uh, a major part of our work over the next, few, next week. Because once we do the changeover, there are always the unforeseen accidents that can happen. <laughs> However good yeah. computers and people's planning is... Suddenly you find that uh, you, you're, somebody's interfering with you or vice versa. Because, as I say, shortwave is fascinating because it doesn't know any boundaries, political or otherwise. And despite the fact that there's international television and all the rest of it, a lot of countries, I'm thinking of people living in China and so on, who don't get freedom of who they can listen to. If they've got a shortwave radio, they can bypass the local censorship. And yes. that's so, that, and that's so in quite a few countries, like, um, I'm thinking of North Korea would be another good example. Mm-hmm. And many years ago, of course, it used to be Russia. Of course, yes. Uh, Lots of shortwave was broadcast towards this former Soviet Union. That's right. Yeah, so it's, if ever there's any international instability, I'm thinking of this in more recent years, it's probably been in the Middle East. The first thing you find is, Suddenly the BBC and people like that are saying, oh, I need shortwave to get into those particular areas. Because I know that's, that's, that's the best way to get to people, uh, when there are severe controls over local media being broadcast. And that's yeah. probably, and that's what happens. Uh, on the local front, I can tell you that years ago in Fiji, in the Fiji Islands, they had, um, a military coup. And the democratic government of the time was overthrown. Um, and the first thing they did was turn off relays of the FM relays that were coming in on satellite of foreign broadcasters. And that's what any authoritarian government does today. If they, if they can, they can turn off stuff coming in off satellites straight away. And so the, um, any domestic transmitter that's broadcasting on FM or digital short, uh, digital services or something can be turned off by the local government. They can't turn off a shortwave transmitter coming in over over the no. airwaves by the ionosphere. Yeah. And another important event that's happening right now is the start of Solar Cycle 25, which is a 11-year cycle that the sun has to go through. And 
this affects shortwave in many different ways, as the past couple cycles have been very low solar energy, which means that there's been a lot of issues with reception. So I want to ask you, how has that affected the solar cycle 25 and your predictions for the future? A solar cycle is 11 years. So over a period of 11 years, it goes from low spot to high spot and back down again. Um, we turn only just turn the corner. This has been a very long, low, uh, a long eleven years. Yes. <laughs> and yes, it's been a long one. And during the low spot of it, the bottom of it, which has been going on now for about three or four years, suddenly all the higher frequencies are not as available to you as they often are. Which means that, and it's the higher frequencies quite often that travel the great distances. And so we find when at a sunspot maximum, signals are going all around the world much more easily. On the, and people can spread. Also, the other advantage is the shortwave transmitters, the broadcasters, can spread themselves over a wider range of frequencies. So it becomes less crowded. That's another advantage. At the moment, a lot of our frequencies we're using, are, or a lot of the time of day or night, is on lower frequencies. Yes. We're using 6 megahertz in our winter months for about 12 hours a day, um, all through the night hours from 6 o'clock in the evening right through to 6 o'clock in the morning at local time. Um, and, but once, once we get into summer, which we're about to go into next week, we'll start to be able to use some of the higher frequencies and also with the fact that the sunspot cycle is also starting to turn the corner, we'll also be able to lift our frequencies up a bit higher. You've been listening to Adrian Sainsbury of Radio New Zealand Pacific, speaking with Aaron Castillo, host of Electronic Echoes on kpcradio.com at Pierce College in Los Angeles. Over now to Henry Umatai in the Philippines with his DX report for February. Hello everyone, to our dear shortwave listeners, wherever you are, welcome to the February 14th edition of the Philippine DX. This is report number 167. I'm Henry in Bacolod City, Nagas Occidental, Central Philippines. Glad to be back and thank you for listening. I would like to thank our DXer friends for sending the reception report most recently. Mr. Peter Goldpinch in Morley, Western Australia. Mr. Kostyantin Perbatorov in Saporizhia, Ukraine. And Mr. Richard Lemke in Alberta, Canada. To all of you, Thank you very much. Reception logs for January 2021. January 1, China Radio International on 11.955 in Filipino from Kunming at 1050 SIO 555 parallel on 12.070 from Shan Sandy Province SIO 555. January 1, China Radio International on 7.410 in Filipino from Chinua. Sichang Province at 1050 SIO 555 January 1 KBS World Radio on 9770 in Vietnamese from Jim J at 1045 SIO 555 January 1 BBC World Service on 11850 in English from Kranji at 1227 SIO 444 January 1 Radio Taiwan International on 11.915 in Indonesian from Tainan at 12.34 SIO 555. January 1, China Radio International on 9.760 in English from Kunming at 12.43 SIO 444. January 16, 
Radio Pilipinas Overseas Service on 9740 in Filipino from Tinang 1 at 0245 SIO 444 January 16 China Radio International on 11955 Indonesian from Kunming at 1340 SIO 444 January 24 BBC World Service on 9580 in English from Kranchi at 1103 SIO 454 January 24, Transworld Ratio 11.970 in English from Acanya, Guam at 11.25 SIO 5.55. January 24, KBS World Ratio 9.770 in English from Kim J at 0.915 SIO 4.44. And January 26, Radio Japan NHK on 6.070 in Indonesian from Tokyo at 21.44 SIO 5.55. Send us your comments. Suggestions, reception logs, and information to PilipinasDX at yahoo.com. That's P-I-L-I-P-I-N-A-S-D-X for PilipinasDX at yahoo.com. This has been Henry Umaday for Wavescan in Bacolod City, Negros Occidental Central, Philippines, Mabuhay, at maraming salamat po. Thank you, Henry. Let me mention a few reception reports we've received recently. David Kent in Juneau, Alaska, heard Wavescan on 9955 kilohertz. From Okeechobee at 0220 UTC, he said uh, reception was fair to excellent, good reception most of the time up there in Alaska. And our good friend Munir KP in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates heard we scan on 7780 kHz. Thank you, Munir. Henry Balestrin in Guayania, state of Guayas, Brazil. Picked up wave scan from KVOH in Los Angeles on 9975 kHz at 0300 UTC. He says, as always, a good program with good presenters bringing always interesting subjects from the past and present. Well, I can tell you that it's my favorite program. Thanks a lot for being on the air. Well, thank you very much, Henry. On the screen there in Uyas, uh, Brazil. And Rudolf Sontag writes in from Gilching in Bavaria, Germany. Heard Wayscan also on 7780 kHz at 0230 UTC with a good SINPO rating of 45444. Thanks for listening to Wavescan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson. Next week, the radio scene in Brazil, Brazilian backgrounds and our Bangladesh DX report. Several QSL cards are available for this program. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for Wavescan to the AWR address in Bangkok, Thailand, and also to the station your radio is tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa, or to IRRS Italy, or to the AWR relay stations that carry Wavescan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in Wavescan, such as today's report from the Philippines. They will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The only email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWRQSLs is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. 
Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. And the email address for other correspondence to WaveScan, other than reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI in Okeechobee, Florida, USA. Till next week, good listening, everyone.